Grapeolade unites Kentucky and the Grape Belt. From Kentucky, the rest of us have caught the goodness of corn pone, corn bread, Johnny Cake, and corn muffins with crisp, curly bacon for breakfast. From the Grape Belt comes a new discovery, Welch's Grapeolade, that fits into the breakfast scheme of cornbread and bacon just as a smile fits into a baby's face. Grapeolade is all the richness and juice of choicest grapes. All the seeds and all the skins are removed, and also those sharp acid crystals. To this delicious purple nectar is added just the right amount of pure sugar, and these together are cooked down till thick like marmalade. Order Grapeolade of your grocer today. Its delicate flavor is a distinct novelty. Write for new Grapeolade recipes specially prepared by Mrs. Louise Andrew. Welsh Grape Juice Company, Westfield, New York. 15-ounce glass jar, 35 cents. 25-ounce enamel-lined tin, 50 cents. Ask the Fountain Man for a Grapeolade Sunday. Hi there, this is Hugh Yeeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. There's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 26. So, why did I choose that advertisement for this episode? Well, you have to go to the show notes to really understand. Take a look at that illustration, which features an elderly, dark-skinned, tuxedoed gentleman with a fringe of white hair above each ear. So, insofar as that advertiser caught the pulse of Syracusans in 1919, those folks clearly were feeling nostalgic for an idealized vision of the Old South, which included black servants in tuxedos. Now, scroll down and check out the image directly below that one, and you'll find that we've jumped forward about a hundred years to a time when someone else was feeling nostalgic for the Old South. On the left, we see a dark-skinned man with his pants down below his butt and his underwear showing. On the right, we see a Confederate statue. Above those images, we find this text. How does a statue being in the same place for a hundred years suddenly become offensive and men walking around in public with their ass showing not offensive? Are people really this ignorant? Hugh here. Before I proceed with my refutation of this obscene horseshit, the anal retentive side of me demands that I point out that in the bit about with their ass showing, the word there is spelled T-H-E-R-E. Yep, par for the course. So, I'm having a hard time with this one, folks. I first saw this meme about 11 days ago. 
And yes, I've got a couple of good reasons for taking this long to get to my refutation. Number one being my infant daughter. I've done very little but change her and feed her during that time, and I've been blasted out of my mind on sleep deprivation. Also, I've spent most of what little time I've had doing the research for this episode and recording the pieces that I've found. But also, I've been procrastinating because I shouldn't have to say any of this. I shouldn't have to tell you why this is obscene. And that's the problem, isn't it? Because I'm a hypocrite. I, of all people, have no business going around saying what I should and shouldn't have to do because I have this thing with the word should. I think it's a meaningless word. I know that sounds fatuous, but try to give me a definition of the word should and you'll see what I mean. You'll find yourself wanting to use the word should again. It's like an idiom hidden in plain sight in our own language. Near as I can figure, the word should refers to an idealized, platonic universe from which our universe has deviated and to which it is obligated to return. Of course I understand the word on an emotional level, but on a rhetorical level it does nothing but obfuscate, so I tend not to use it. So, I of all people have no business saying I shouldn't have to explain this to you. So, here goes. First of all, let's dispense with the obvious. This meme shows two objects, a black body on one side and a statue on the other. It's a man! It's a man, for God's sake, said the guy who doesn't even believe in God. It's a man! It's a man on the left, for fuck's sake! You're comparing a man to a statue right out of the starting gate. You're not just in bed with the devil. You've got your dick up the devil's ass. See what I mean? See why I resort to nonsensical words like should? I shouldn't have to say this, but apparently I do. It's a man. A black body, a black life. And yes, this kind of horseshit is why we say black lives matter, because people go around trying to concoct this smarmy, ridiculous, pathetic, callow attempt at rhetoric by cobbling together an image of a man on one side and a statue on the other. This is the most obscene objectification I have seen in recent memory. Don't set foot on this path. <sighs> you see why this took me so long? The very passion that drives me to provide historical context prevents me from doing so in any rational way. I am too upset about this. All right, so I'm over the hump of my ranting, so let's go on pretending for a moment, or rather an hour, that this is not obscene on the face of it. Let's pretend that this bears examination. The next part of this that is ridiculously off-base is the meme-meister's use of the word offensive. You know what? Fuck you and your use of the word offensive. Fuck you and your presumption that liberals are so concerned about being offended. I don't give a rat's ass 
about what's offensive. Fuck you and your offensiveness. I care about people being able to live. I care about people being able to vote. I care about people not being ground into the dirt by systematic oppression and hatred. My problem with these statues has nothing to do with anything as petty as offensiveness. My problem with these statues is that they are the real manifestations of real systems of oppression which impact real people. Now, there's one more aspect of this meme that I need to point out. The bit about the statue being in the same place for a hundred years. I think the pig fucker who made this meme was accidentally accurate. Obviously, they were too fucking ignorant to have been accurate on purpose, but they were accurate in the sense that this statue has not been in place for 150 years. Because this statue was not made any time near the Civil War. It was not made any time near the Reconstruction Era. This statue was probably made somewhere around the 19-teens. And the reasons behind that provide indispensable context for everything that's coming in this episode. So please, go to the show notes and follow that link to the NPR article, Confederate Statues Were Built to Further a White Supremacist Future. If nothing else, check out that chart and note that massive spike in the creation of Confederate statues around the 19-teens. So, I posted this meme to my Hall of Shame, a photo album I reserve for the top-shelf obscene horseshit that I find floating around on the internet. Yeah, I know, what can I say? I'm going to use the phrase obscene horseshit a lot in this episode. So among the replies to this post was the following from an old high school friend. I think we all need to learn to deal with stuff that is offensive to others, whether it be Jean's Lowe, a historical statue representing a time in history, whether it's offensive at this point in time or not. Life is full of offensive things, whether you're on one side or another. I think we would all get along together much better if we learned tolerance for certain things instead of wanting to do away with everything that offends a certain group. We all have to live together in this world. So why keep on fighting about physical things instead of ideals? Remember, physical things have a point and reason in history, if anything, to remind us about how times were different, whether they be good or bad, as a memory to not repeat history. Hugh here. Two things about this. First of all, no. No. I am not engaging in a conversation that begins with the supposition that a man's choice of dress is at all commensurable with anything having to do with a statue. Again, man, statue. Don't come at me with any rhetoric that puts them on the same level. Now, as to that last bit, the bit about a memory to not repeat history, I thought that was interesting. I thought it was nonsense, but I thought it was interesting because I hadn't considered it. So I kept that thought in mind as I began my search. I went to the Library of Congress's Chronicling America newspaper archive, like you do, and I searched for the words Confederate and statue within five words of each other. And again, keeping in mind what the meme itself said about the statue being in place for a hundred years before it was offensive, I restricted the search to the year 1919. I got seven results, which you can see from the link in the show notes. I'm going to share five of them with you. 
The following comes from the Sunday Star of Washington, D.C., Sunday morning, October 12, 1919. As you listen to this, pay special attention to the way the writer evokes pride in the contemporary military by hearkening back to the Civil War. That's going to be a recurring theme. General Jackson Day in Richmond. Unveiling of statue, sword presentation, and parade mark celebration. Richmond, Virginia, November 11th. With the presentation of the sword formerly used by General Thomas Jonathan Jackson to the Confederate Memorial Literary Society by his granddaughter, Mrs. Randolph Preston, a street parade and the unveiling of an equestrian statue of the Southern leader, Stonewall Jackson Day, was observed in the former capital of the Confederacy today. The sword of General Jackson will be permanently preserved in the Confederate Memorial. The statue unveiled today stands at Monument Avenue and the Boulevard. Mrs. Preston presented the sword on behalf of her brother, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas J. Jackson Christian, who is at present on foreign duty and who cabled his regret at not being able to be present at the exercises in honor of the memory of his distinguished forebear. The sword completes the collection of Jackson relics in the Virginia Room at the museum, which now includes General Jackson's cap, epaulets, spurs, pistol, field glasses, haversack, and a number of other articles. Miss Sally Archer Anderson, president of the society, presided. Reverend James Power Smith, D.D., sole surviving member of Jackson's staff, offered prayer and former Virginia Attorney General William A. Anderson spoke, after which the presentation took place, the sword being accepted for the society by Governor Westmoreland Davis. Governor Headed Parade Governor Davis and his staff headed a parade, and the members of the Stonewall Jackson Monument Corporation also marched. The Cadet Corps of the Virginia Military Institute, where Jackson was Professor of Philosophy and Artillery Tactics at the outbreak of the Confederate War, followed with a battalion of Virginia Volunteers, the Richmond Blues and the 1st and 2nd Companies of the Richmond Grays, and a battalion of separate companies of the Virginia National Guard from Charlottesville, Petersburg, Lynchburg, and Roanoke the Hugh Stockdell Machine Gun Company of Richmond, and the Cadet Battalion of the John Marshall High School. On the speaker's stand at the monument, when the exercises began, were seated the sculptor, F. William Seavers, and other guests, including Confederate veterans in uniform. Hugh here. So, yeah, that did not sound to me like a memory-to-not-repeat history. That sounded reverent. Moving on to the next article, this one is from the Richmond Times-Dispatch, Richmond, Virginia, Monday, September 15, 1919. Give Reasons for Facing Jackson Statue North Confederate chieftain never turned back to that direction, says member of committee. When the Stonewall Jackson Monument is unveiled early in October with appropriate ceremonies, it will be found that the southern chieftain faces the north. Speculation arising relative to the reasons for thus placing the heroic figure have been set at rest by the statement of one of the committee which decided this point. He never turned his back to the north, did he? questioned this member convincingly. 
And besides, coming into the new Broad Street station, if the statue had been facing the south, Jackson's horse's tail would have been presented to the approach from the station, which wouldn't have given a good first impression of the monument, would it? Well then, we considered all those points, and we decided to have him face the north. I like to think of Jackson as still going north, commented an old army man. He was going north at Chancellorsville when a bullet stopped him. Nothing but death would ever have stopped him permanently, and I like to think of his statue as facing the goal which he was not fated to attain. The statue of General J.E.B. Stewart also faces north, while that of General Robert E. Lee faces south. Hugh here. So again, this is diametrically opposed to remembering the past so that we don't repeat the same mistakes. This is explicitly hero worship. And did you catch that simmering resentment toward the North and the longing to reach the North through battle? Well, it turns out that residents of Richmond in 1919 had an easy way to go and stoke that resentment and longing. Directly below that article, there's the following small advertisement. Confederate Museum, 12th and Clay Streets. Open daily, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Saturdays, 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. Admission, 25 cents. All right, moving on to the St. Landry Clarion of Opelousas, Louisiana, Saturday, April 5th, 1919. Council gives $150 to UDC. Local chapter have funds to erect statue to valiant Confederates. At the session of the city council Tuesday night, there was appropriated the sum of $150 to the ladies of the Gordon chapter, UDC, to be used in erecting a Confederate monument on the courthouse grounds. This amount added to the generous appropriation made by the police jury recently and the sum raised by the ladies in the past several years, we are informed, will be sufficient to guarantee the erection of this deserved testimonial to those who served in the armies of the Confederate States of America. The ladies in charge of this work have been untiring in their efforts and no doubt feel a just pride in the successful culmination of their efforts. Hugh here. So note that in that one we had a reference to a deserved testimonial and to just pride. Again, this is unalloyed hero worship. But hey, if you think that's overwrought, get a load of this next one. This is from the Lexington Advertiser of Lexington, Mississippi, April 25th, 1919. Now just for context, the Victory Liberty Loan was the fifth and final issuance of war bonds related to World War I debt. Now again, in this article, we see an appeal to patriotism by way of drawing a continuity between the Confederate spirit and the contemporary military spirit. Here we go. Victory Liberty Loan Notes The foremost obligation of which I can think is the duty of every American citizen of humble station or high to guard jealously the honor of the nation. Secretary Carter Glass the war is over, in a sense. A reactionary spirit is abroad. The nerve of mortal combat is abated. Men think they may give their patriotism a rest. 
but I refuse to hold my task. I decline to believe that the American people are indifferent to the honorable commitments of their government or would diminish the splendor of the nation's achievements in war by an exhibition of avarice in time of peace. Four liberty loans have gone over the top, and nothing nor anybody can shake my faith in the purpose of the country to put the capstone to the splendid structure of national credit by making the victory loan an abundant success. The victory liberty loan day was ideal. A day of unclouded skies and balmy springtime weather called the victory liberty loan buyer from far and near. By early dawn, the peaceful hills had waked and stirred, and the answering echoes of life were heard, as vehicles of every description were coming to town. Seven o'clock, daylight saving time, found a large and interested crowd awaiting the arrival of the special train bearing the speakers of the day and the object of concern, the baby war tank. The parade, led by the A&M college boys who attracted many favorable comments in the handsome khaki uniforms, encircled the court square. Many onlookers and participators marched along, following the stirring music and the tank. The assembly place was the west side of the court square, with the red brick walls of the courthouse framed in fresh spring foliage for a background. Standing guard as a sentinel of peace, the white granite statue of the Confederate monument looked down upon this hour as a benedicite of the brave men who had fought long and well. Honorable H. H. Johnson, in well-chosen patriotic remarks, introduced the speakers of the day, and the vast crowd was thrilled by the speakers. Lieutenant Lee of St. Louis, Lieutenant Wynne, and Mr. Speck, $35,000 worth of bonds were bought as a fitting climax to the program. Hugh here. The article goes on and on and on about the Victory Liberty Loan program and the ceremony, but that's the end of the bit about the Confederate statue. And hey, was I right about that setting a new bar for being overwrought? That was the first time I had ever encountered the word benedicite. And now we come to the final article in this search, which is a beautiful example of the joys of plundering newspaper archives. Again, I searched for the words Confederate and statue within five words of each other in 1919. Got seven results. This was the seventh one. I already had a bunch of good stuff, so I almost didn't follow up on this unassuming little article from the Washington Herald, Washington, D.C., Sunday, June 8th, 1919. Washingtonians invited to Winchester. The members of the Southern Colony in this city have been invited to Winchester, Virginia, July 17th, to attend the unveiling of a bronze statue to a noted Confederate officer, Major General Stephen D. Ramsour of North Carolina. The memorial will be located at the country house in which the officer died during the Civil War after being mortally wounded at the Battle of Cedar Creek. Representative Charles M. Stedman of North Carolina will be the orator of the occasion. Members of Confederate Veterans Camp 171 of this city will attend the ceremonies. Hugh here. So, Major General Stephen Dodson Ramsor. Now first, just to spare you the confusion that I already suffered, I'll say that I don't think there ever was a bronze statue of him. I think that this newspaper writer was confused. 
I did a lot of digging, and I couldn't find a shred of information aside from this article on a statue. And I eventually concluded that this article refers to a monument with a brass placard at the bottom that was unveiled in 1919 and was dedicated in 1920. Now, if you go to the show notes, you can see a photo of that dedication ceremony in 1920. It's quite an impressive monument. Now, just to give you a sense of what a big deal that monument dedication was, I'll read the following from Wikipedia. It's from the notes in the North Carolina Collection Photographic Archives. Monument dedication to Stephen Dodson Ramsor at Cedar Creek Battlefield near Middletown, Virginia, 1920. Was erected in 1920 by the North Carolina United Daughters of the Confederacy with assistance from the North Carolina Historical Commission and the United Confederate Veterans. Representatives from General Ramsour's hometown of Lincolnton, North Carolina, and 45 Ramsour descendants were among the 120 people in attendance at the ceremony. Hugh here. If you go to the show notes, you'll see a couple of links. One is to a Stone Sentinels page that has photos of the monument as it stands today. Another is a Bell Grove Plantation page that has an article about the monument rededication in 2014. You'll also find the following letter from Ramsor. I swear I didn't plan this. I just found the article in the archives, and did a minimal amount of research. Check this shit out. West Point, New York, Saturday, November 8th, 1856. My dear Dave, how are you this wintry night? I am terribly lonesome, my noble roommate Gibbs being confined to the guard room until tattoo for some unmilitary offense, but strange to say, in fine spirits. I am with one in huzzas for Buchanan and the indomitable democracy. Our country is safe for a few years more, and I believe those years to be very few. I never have and do not now devote much time to politics, but any man of the smallest observation can plainly see that the union of the states cannot exist harmoniously, that there must and can and will be a dissolution, wise, peaceful, and equitable, I hope, but at whatever cost it must come. The more I see of northern people and manners of character, am I convinced that it must be so. Look at the vote of the North in the late contest. An overwhelming majority for a renegade, a cheat and a liar, only because he declared himself in favor of abolishing slavery, the very source of our existence, the greatest blessing both for master and slave that could have been bestowed upon us. Say not that the nationality of the noble democracy can prevent it. The result in New Hampshire alone is amply sufficient to satisfy any impartial mind that opposition to Southern institutions was the ruling principle. See what strides the rankest abolitionism is making over the entire North. From my heart I hope such a fate may be averted, but I confess the wonder is how we have remained in peaceful connection so long. Our manners, feelings, and education is as if we were different nations." Indeed, everything indicates plainly a separation. Look out for a stormy time in 1860. In the meantime, the South ought to prepare for the worst. Let her establish armories, collect stores, and provide for the most desperate of all calamities, civil war. 
But I did not intend to occupy so much space with my fear, which probably are very foolish and unfounded. I wish I could think so. Before leaving the subject, let me crow a score of times more over the defeated scoundrels, enemies of their country, their God, and themselves. Cheers, long and loud, for those noble and daring patriots who have achieved the glorious victory. Hugh here. Yep, that's the guy to whom this magnificent monument was dedicated and rededicated. Imagine being a black person in 1919, seeing your rights abrogated at every turn, and then seeing a monument to that guy going up. This is the social, political, and military context within which these people lived in 1919, so don't come at me with this horseshit about the statue being offensive. That statue, along with all the others like it, was part of a campaign of racial violence. But let's say you don't buy that. Let's say you're sitting there thinking to yourself, well, he's only read me five articles. These are all anecdotal. They're not representative. Fine. Let's take a look at some broader social and literary trends. I'm going to read to you from a book on my shelf, War, Politics, and Reconstruction, Stormy Days in Louisiana, first published in 1930. This was the memoir of Henry Clay Warmoth, Reconstruction Governor of Louisiana. I'm going to be reading to you from the introduction by John C. Rodriguez. Warmoth, who died in 1931 at the age of 89, undertook work on his memoirs during the early 1920s, when he was in his early 80s. He did so, as stated in his foreword, in order to refute the many false and vicious statements and to expose the lies, unmitigated lies, notorious and malicious lies, that were being published about Reconstruction and that willing and eager readers have been glad to believe. Instead, he intended to offer a full and truthful narrative of the history of that exciting era. Warmoth regrets the lengths to which certain writers on Reconstruction, quote, have gone to discredit and bring into disrepute the men who honestly strove to protect the loyal people of the South, both white and black, after the Civil War, end quote. And he takes special pains to debunk the prevailing view about him and his record, the familiar story held that Warmoth had arrived in Louisiana penniless, that he had used politics as a means of personal enrichment, and that his political support had rested almost entirely upon black voters, whose allegiance to the Republican Party he was alleged to have exploited shamelessly. Warmoth quotes one historian critic in particular, Henry E. Chambers, who charged that Warmoth had gained, quote, the confidence and blind devotion of the Negroes, end quote, and that such support, quote, made him invincible when he ran for office, end quote. In defending both his own record and Reconstruction in general, Warmoth confronted the prevailing view, at least among most white Americans, of Reconstruction as an unfortunate, if not disastrous, period in American history. As the nation abandoned its commitment to the former slaves after the end of Reconstruction in 1877, and as the northern states moved toward regional reconciliation during the half-century after the Civil War, most white Americans willingly embraced the white South's version of Reconstruction and the white supremacist social order on which it was based. According to this traditional view of Reconstruction, 
President Abraham Lincoln had planned a conciliatory policy toward the South after the war, a policy that was continued by his successor, Andrew Johnson, following Lincoln's assassination. Johnson's intentions, however, were thwarted by the vindictive radical Republicans in Congress, led by Thaddeus Stevens in the House of Representatives and Charles Sumner in the Senate, who were intent on punishing the South and maintaining Republican rule. They set about achieving these goals by imposing racial equality and black suffrage on the southern states while barring many prominent former Confederates from office. Only recently removed from bondage, the former slaves proved to be utterly unfit for the responsibilities of democratic government, and they quickly became the pawns of the radicals and their Republican allies within the southern states. Among the latter were carpetbaggers and scalawags, white southern turncoats and opportunists, who easily manipulated the former slaves and rode the black vote into office. What resulted was an orgy of corruption, spoils politics, high taxation, profligate public spending, and massive debt, all spearheaded by the Republican Party. With no alternative, the downtrodden but noble white South was compelled to resort to violence in the guise of the Ku Klux Klan and other armed groups in order to overthrow Negro rule and restore the South's natural racial order. Scalawags and even many carpetbaggers eventually saw the errors of their ways and joined in the crusade to redeem the South and bring Reconstruction to an end. In this version of the story, then, the carpetbaggers bore much of the responsibility for the travesties of Reconstruction, and by applying the epithet carpetbagger to transplanted Northerners, white Southerners were making a conscious political statement. Although the term itself dates only from 1868, not coincidentally when Republican governments were coming to power in the South, it embodied an idea familiar to 19th century Americans. The carpetbagger was thought to be an opportunistic swindler, a confidence man. Of lower class origins, he was a transient who moved from community to community, carrying his few belongings in a traveler's bag made of carpet, in search of the next prospective hoax. This interpretation of the carpetbaggers in particular and of Reconstruction in general found expression in popular histories, school textbooks, and fiction, and it was dramatized for generations of Americans by D.W. Griffith in the classic 1915 film, The Birth of a Nation. Moreover, it was sanctioned by the white-dominated historical profession, especially in the works of Columbia University professor William Archibald Dunning, who, in addition to his own published writings, supervised a coterie of doctoral dissertations, mostly state-level studies, on the Reconstruction era, and who would lend his name to the Dunningite interpretation of Reconstruction, what undoubtedly contributed to Warmoth's decision to write his memoirs was the 1918 publication of Ella Lawn's monograph, Reconstruction in Louisiana after 1868, a revision of her doctoral dissertation, which she completed not at Columbia but at the University of Pennsylvania. Although Lawn must be credited with providing a relatively even-handed, for the time, assessment of Warmoth, she had written to Warmoth while revising her dissertation and put to him a series of questions about his governorship that struck Warmoth, to judge by his reply, as highly prejudicial. If Warmoth did not write his memoirs specifically to refute Lawn, he did so to counter the prevailing view of Reconstruction that works such as hers represented. Hugh here. 
it's important to talk about Dunning because he was a foundational element of the historiography in 1919. But so far I've only read to you the words of one historian, John C. Rodriguez. What if that's just his spin? Fine, let's do what I always do. Go to the newspaper archives. Again, I ran a search on the Library of Congress's Chronicling America site, this time opening up the date range to something like 1900 to 1919. So here we're going back two years to an article from the Honolulu Star Bulletin, Honolulu, Territory of Hawaii, Monday, April 30th, 1917. Arranges Fine History Course Increased interest in the affairs of the national government with war in the air has turned reading minds to history. The Bureau of Education of the Department of the Interior has recently arranged what is known as the American History Course. The Bureau announces that the reading course is now available to all and will issue a certificate signed by the United States Commissioner of Education to those who read the course and fulfill the requirements. Upon application to the Home Education Division of the Bureau, the list of books, application blanks, and directions for reading will be furnished free of charge. The Bureau does not furnish the books. H.W. Kinney, Superintendent of Public Instruction, says that the course is not necessarily for instructors and declares that anyone reading and grasping the course will find it intensely interesting and will be the very best informed on American history when the course is completed. The following is a list of the 23 books in the course. Hugh here, and if you scroll down to number 20, you'll see this. Reconstruction, Political and Economic, by William Archibald Dunning. Hugh here. So, during World War I, the Bureau of Education of the Department of the Interior found Dunning's work important enough to include in a core curriculum of American history. And again, note that sense of military continuity that I've spoken of a couple of times already. Propaganda always romanticizes the previous war in order to stir up feelings about the current war. Alright, now we're going back two more years to the Sunday Star, Washington, D.C., Sunday morning, February 21st, 1915. This is in a column with the heading, Books Received. If you scroll all the way down to the bottom of that column, you'll see this. Studies in Southern History and Politics. Inscribed to William Archibald Dunning, Ph.D., L.L.D., Lieber Professor of History and Political Philosophy in Columbia University, by his former pupils, the authors. New York, Columbia University Press. Hugh here. So here we see Dunning's students, who are now the new generation of historians, churning out his spin on the noble southern lost cause and carpetbaggers and scalawags. Now, we're going to jump back another eight years. This one is from the Washington Herald, Washington, D.C., Sunday, August 4, 1907, and it's a doozy. In the world of books, the new volume of the American Nation series, published last week, Reconstruction, Political and Economic, is notable not only because it is a thorough and careful study of the period immediately following the Civil War, but because the author, William Archibald Dunning, Ph.D., LL.D., does not hesitate to differ from received opinions in his estimate of men and events. 
Contrasting Sumner and Thad Stevens, he writes vigorously as follows. Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner now saw the triumphs of their doctrine, which had long been treated with contumely and ridicule. Stevens, truculent, vindictive, and cynical, dominated the House of Representatives in the second session of this Congress with even less opposition than in the first. A relentlessly keen and logical mind, an ever-ready gift of biting sarcasm and stinging repartee, and a total lack of scruple as to means in the pursuit of a legislative end, secured him an ascendancy in the House which none of his party associates ever dreamed of disputing. Sumner in the Senate made himself felt in a far different way. His forte was exalted moral fervor and humanitarian idealism. He lived in the Empyrean and descended thence upon his colleagues with dogmas which he discovered there. However remote his doctrines from any relation to the realities of human affairs, he preached them without intermission and forced his colleagues by mere iteration to give them a place in law. He would shed tears at the bare thought of refusing to freedmen rights of which they had no comprehension, but would filibuster all the session to prevent the restoration to the southern whites of rights which were essential to their whole conception of life. He was the perfect type of that narrow fanaticism which erudition and egotism combine to produce, and to which political crisis alone gives the opportunity for actual achievement. Hugh here. Did you catch all that? Seriously, if you weren't paying strict attention, I highly recommend that you rewind and listen again. Because what he just said, if you strip away the elegant contemporary vernacular, is this. Thaddeus Stevens and Charles Sumner, the two most influential abolitionists in that historical period, they were nothing but social justice warriors. Lol. Seriously, the social media rhetoric has not changed in the last century. And this guy, with his snide, lopsided view of Reconstruction, that's the guy who contributed substantially to the historical substrate on which those statues were erected. All right, but say you don't buy all my highfalutin talk about historical substrate. Let's say you don't think books substantially influenced the erection of those statues. Fine. You want something real? You want something solid that you can grasp? How about the right to vote? Again, in Chronicling America, I searched for articles from 1919 with the words Negro and vote within five words of each other. Again, only articles from 1919. And I came back with 376 results. Now don't worry, I'm only going to read you one. This is the second result. I didn't bother reading any more because this one says it all. This is from the Pensacola Journal, Pensacola, Florida, Tuesday morning, July 15th, 1919. The Negro Vote Woman suffrage is necessary to maintain white supremacy in the South, in the opinion of Chief Justice Clark of the Supreme Court of North Carolina. This view, expressed in writings and public utterances of Justice Clark for some time past, becomes a most timely suffrage argument now that the Supreme Court of the United States handed down a decision under which the elimination of the Negro vote, through the so-called Grandfather Clause and similar provisions of state law, is declared unconstitutional and such laws invalid. 
Apropos of congressional election frauds in Illinois, where a federal court assumed jurisdiction, Justice Clark gave out an interview containing the opinion above referred to. He pointed out that the extension of jurisdiction of the federal court in the Illinois case made probable a similar course in regard to the Grandfather Clause in the South, which would result in a decision declaring this clause invalid. He said further, In North Carolina, such a decision would readmit to the polls 125,000 Negro votes. What preparation have we made to meet such a possible result? I know of but one remedy. The census shows that the white population of North Carolina is 70% and the colored population 30%. It follows that the white adult women of North Carolina are more in numbers than the Negro men and Negro women combined. The votes of 160,000 white women can be relied on to stand solidly against any measure or any man who proposes to question Anglo-Saxon supremacy. I am not intimating that the admission of the white women to the polls will secure democratic supremacy, they will not impair it, nor that it will prejudice the Republican element. The equal suffrage movement has never proceeded on party lines, and the women would scorn to be admitted unless they were as free in their choice of party measures and candidates as the men. But what I am saying is that if the Negroes are readmitted by a decision of the federal court to suffrage, the 160,000 votes of the white women of the state will be one solid obstacle to any measure that would impair either for them or their children the continuance of white supremacy. We have been living in a doubtful paradise, as if the Supreme Court will decide this matter as we wish it. Should that court hold otherwise, we shall have to look to the votes of the white women of North Carolina, 260,000 strong, to overcome any possible danger from the 250,000 votes of Negro men and Negro women. What is numerically true of North Carolina in this respect is also true of Delaware, Maryland, the District of Columbia, Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, and Texas. In each of these states, the number of white women is greater than the total number of Negro men and Negro women combined. The figures for these states from the United States Census Report are as follows. Hugh here and it goes on to give for each of those states the numbers for white women, total Negro population, and preponderance of white women. And it concludes with this paragraph. There are only two states in the South, namely South Carolina and Mississippi, where white women do not outnumber Negro women. In South Carolina, there are 162,625 white women and 181,264 Negro women. In Mississippi, there are 180,787 white women and 251,901 Negro women. In both of these states, the number of Negro men is greater than the number of white men, and the ratio of white and colored voters would therefore not be altered were women's suffrage to prevail in those states. Hugh here. All right, let's unpack that. First, the Grandfather Clause. The following is from the Library of Congress. Guin v. United States, 1915. Many southern and border states devised legal barriers to circumvent the 15th Amendment and prohibit black voting. These included poll taxes, literacy tests, grandfather clauses, and the white primary. In 1910, Oklahoma passed a constitutional amendment that held that only residents whose grandfathers had voted in 1865 could vote, thus disqualifying the descendants of slaves. 
the NAACP persuaded the U.S. Attorney General to challenge the constitutionality of the Grandfather Clause in 1913. Oklahoma appealed the case to the Supreme Court. Moorfield's story argued the case on behalf of the NAACP. In June 1915, the Supreme Court ruled in Guin v. United States that the Grandfather Clause was in violation of the 15th Amendment. Hugh here. So that's the Grandfather Clause. Now, on to Chief Justice Clark and his promotion of white supremacy. I wanted to make sure I wasn't basing my narrative on a single newspaper writer who might have been biased against Clark. So I went digging in Trust, a great repository of historical documents, and I hit the jackpot. The following is from a 1916 pamphlet that was clearly published by people favorable to Clark. Please read carefully and hand to some intelligent friend. Ballots for both. An address by Chief Justice Walter Clark at Greenville, North Carolina, 8th December, 1916. In North Carolina, the white population is 70% and the Negro 30%. Hence, there are 50,000 more white women than all the Negro men and Negro women put together. The admission of the women to the suffrage therefore could not possibly jeopardize white supremacy, but would make it more secure. Hugh here, skipping ahead to the next excerpt. There are those who assert that in the South to allow the women to vote will bring out the Negro women and overwhelm us. The truth is that in North Carolina, the white population is 70% and the Negro 30%. Hence, there are 50,000 more white women than all the Negro men and Negro women put together, and their admission to the suffrage could not possibly jeopardize white supremacy. Besides, if the white men are able to prevent the colored cook's husband from voting, they ought to be able to prevent the cook herself voting. Equal suffrage will strengthen and not jeopardize white supremacy. Possibly the cheekiest objection is that the doubling of the number of voters will increase the cost of holding an election. For 150 years, the women have been paying taxes to pay the costs of elections in which they had no share. Surely they should be allowed to vote, as they pay their half of the cost of the elections. Hugh here, skipping ahead to the third and final snippet. Municipal Suffrage for Women Reply of the Legislative Committee in 1917 of the North Carolina Equal Suffrage League. The movement for justice to women in North Carolina is nonpartisan, as it has been in every other state. We did not expect that a partisan appeal would be made to deny us a fair share in the government under which we live, and to the support of which we pay our taxes and contribute our full share of labor, in view of the fact that every party has, through its papers, platform, and speakers, called strenuously upon the women for support. There are in this state 700,000 white adults, of whom 350,000 are white women and 300,000 Negro adults, of whom 150,000 are Negro women. There are, therefore, 200,000 more white women than Negro women, and it is impossible that their admission to the polls should jeopardize white supremacy. The Negro women have the same grandfathers as the Negro men, and would be disqualified to exactly the same extent. 
If under the present grandfather clause the Democratic majority is 50,000, by doubling the white vote, the Democratic majority in the state would be doubled if the white women are Democratic in the same proportion as the men. Hugh here. That's the atmosphere within which those Confederate statues were erected. At a time when politicians openly, proudly strategized the disenfranchisement of black voters, statues honoring men who fought for the perpetuation of slavery in the existing territories and the expansion of slavery into new territories were rising like Johnny Cakes. But let's pretend for one revolting moment that all of that wasn't enough to convince you that those statues were orders of magnitude more than offensive. Let's go back to Chronicling America and search for articles from 1919 with the words Negro and lynched within ten words of each other. Go to the show notes, follow the link, check out the 1,611 results. Yes, that's correct. 1919 alone, the words Negro and lynched within 10 words of each other, 1,611 results. I'll just read you two. This one's from The Kentuckian, Hopkinsville, Kentucky, Saturday, May 17th, 1919. Negro lynched and body burned at Vicksburg. Vicksburg, Mississippi, May 15th. Lloyd Clay, aged 24, a Negro, alleged to have assaulted a young white woman, was lynched and then his body burned last night by a mob of between 800 and 1,000 persons. The mob broke into the county jail, overpowered Sheriff Frank Scott and 12 deputies, and took the Negro to the heart of the city. Here, after his head had been saturated with oil and a lighted match applied, he was strung up from the limb of a tree and a fire built beneath him. A fusillade of shots then was fired into the body. Hugh here, and this one is from the Lakeland Evening Telegram. Lakeland, Florida, Monday, September 29th, 1919. Mayor of Omaha regains consciousness but still in critical condition from attempt of mob to hang him. Forty to sixty injured, Negro lynched, and courthouse burned. General Wood in command of federal troops who now have the city under martial law. By Associated Press. Omaha, September 29th. Mayor Smith, injured yesterday when a mob attempted to lynch him during the rioting here, is still in a critical condition this morning, reports from the hospital indicated. It is stated the mayor recovered consciousness, but his physician said it was too early to make a definite statement regarding his condition. City Quiet Today by Associated Press Omaha, Nebraska, September 29th After a night of mob rule during which a Negro was lynched, an attempt was made to hang the mayor of Omaha, Edward Smith. The county courthouse was burned, one man shot and killed, and probably 40 others injured. The city was quiet today under the patrol of federal troops. The mayor is at the hospital and was still unconscious early today as a result of an attempt made by the mob to hang him because he advised against lynching the Negro who was in the jail charged with attacking a white girl. The latest reports from the rioting estimate the injured all the way from 45 to 60. Only two persons were killed, the Negro who was lynched and a white man. Mayor Wood in command. 
by Associated Press. Washington, September 29th. Mayor General Wood, commander of the Central Department, was directed by Baker to proceed to Omaha, where federal troops were sent last night to quell the riot. Hugh here. So, once again, fuck you to anyone who attempts to frame this Confederate statue controversy in terms of offensiveness. We're not talking about offensiveness. These statues are not offensive. These statues are a part of a system of racial violence. So as you've listened to me expound on my research that stemmed from a stupid meme about a Confederate statue, have you found yourself wondering where exactly that statue is? I was dying of curiosity about that since the original image was too blurry for me to make out even so much as the year engraved on the statue. But after I did all this research, I did a little Google search. Surprisingly, a reverse image search was not helpful at all. But after I took a quick look for some distinguishing characteristics, I tried a simple Google search of Confederate statue crossed rifles, and I hit pay dirt. This statue stands in Covington Square of Covington, Georgia. Check out the link in the show notes to the 2017 article in the Rockdale Newton Citizens. Newton commissioners hear call for removal of Confederate statue. I'm sure that's what got this whole meme started. And by the way, the statue was erected in 1906, one year before that Dunning book, Reconstruction, Political and Economic, was published. So, now that we've found the original statue, let's see what all that fuss was about. I'm sure that it was never really offensive. I'm sure this is just liberal snowflakes making a big deal out of nothing after this poor, inoffensive statue stood there for a hundred years, right? Here's what's carved into the front of the statue. To the Confederate dead of Newton County. Their gallant and heroic deeds, like monumental shafts, arise from out the graveyard of the past and mark the tombs where valor lies. Erected April 26th, 1906. Hugh here. Yep, gallant, heroic, valor. Checks out. Let's see what it says on the second side. Its fame on brightest pages penned by poets and by sages, shall go sounding down the ages, furl its folds, though now we must. Mmm, that's good butthurt. But let's tear ourselves away from that onanistic fantasy of the lost cause and check out the third side. No sordid or mercenary spirit animated the cause espoused by those to whom this monument is erected or inspired the men who bravely fought and the women who freely suffered for it. Its final failure could not dishonor it, nor did defeat estrange its devotees. Why, yes, that's right. No sordid or mercenary... (laughs) Sorry, I just can't. (laughs) All right, moving on to the fourth side. While this monument is erected in memory of Confederate soldiers and the sacred cause for which they contended, it is also intended to commemorate the noble women whose peerless patriotism and sublime lives of heroic and self-sacrificing service enhanced the holiness of that cause and prolonged the struggle for its supremacy 
by inspiring its champions with increased ardor, enthusiasm, and gallantry in their contest. <sighs> Hugh here. Sacred Cause. After all my research, all of my ranting, all of my invective, all of my swearing, no expletives seem sufficient to respond to that. Sacred cause. There's a statue in a public square erected in 1906 dedicated to the sacred cause of the Confederacy. Yeah, I gotta call in my old friend Jules on this one. Hey Jules, would you mind? This is some fucked up repugnant shit. Thanks, man. One last time, folks. This is not about some statues being offensive. This is about the fact that those statues exist, have always existed. Yes, for a hundred years they have existed as a representation of systematic racial oppression and violence. This one meant a great deal to me, and I'm proud of it, so I want to give an especially heartfelt thanks for listening. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Trinisky for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. greatest of ease, a daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, and my love he stole away. 